Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now today we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus delivers a long message. And previously in chapter 6, he touched on the issue of prayer, but he's going to do it again now in chapter 7. And I, I just find it fascinating, the subject of prayer in the life of a believer. You know, I, I believe that we have a tendency, uh, on a day like today, when the subject of prayer comes up, at least on the inside, we have this tendency to sort of sink down and slide down in our seats a little bit. You know, I, I, you watch these movies, and in the movies, you know, they give these injections of truth serum to people, and then they have to say the truth. I don't know whether that's true or not, that they have truth serums like that, but if there were such a truth serum and we were all to be injected with it today, and then we played a word association game with prayer, it'd be very interesting. You know, it might go something like this, prayer, guilt. You know, I should be praying, but I don't really pray. Or maybe it would go like this, prayer, too busy. I just can't really find time to pray. Or maybe it would be prayer, and the response would be frustration. I have prayed for a while, maybe a long while, and God doesn't seem to really care. Now, how do I know that we have those tendencies? Because my flesh, in my flesh, that's how I tend to be, exactly the same way. At times, I want to slide down in my seat in the inner man, and I would have the same kinds of associations, too busy, a little bit of guilt, a little bit of frustration. Well, I think what the Lord Jesus wants to do today is to lift our chins up. And he's really saying to us, look at me. Your heavenly Father is always eager to meet your needs and to bless you with good gifts. You know, we live in a culture that thrives on busyness and activities. We all could list the various activities that we are involved with. We live in a society that promotes independence and self-confidence, a society that's focused on achievement. And the solution when we're trying to get something done, usually that we hear in the culture, is you just need to try harder. And even in the Christian community, here's what I see happening. Prayer often just gets relegated to the crisis moments of our life. It's not really a vital part of our daily life. And I believe that Jesus wants to offer to us encouragement today. Now, if you haven't been with us in the Sermon on the Mount, we want to remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus clarifying what genuine righteousness is all about, to tell us what true righteousness looks like. I mean, we, we are to be the light of the world, but what does that really look like? How does God want us to shine? And in all that, it brings us to chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, and I would like to read those verses, invite you to follow along as I read. Jesus in his message says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks 
finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake? He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The title I've given to the message today is True Righteousness Simplified. And we're going to see it simplified, first of all, vertically in verses 7 to 11, where he's going to tell us that true righteousness is active in prayer. We're going to receive an encouragement to pray. And then in verse 12, we're going to see true righteousness simplified horizontally, where he's going to talk about how true righteousness practices the golden rule. He's going to give us a principle to live by. So the first thing we want to look at is true righteousness simplified vertically in verses 7 to 11, where true righteousness is active in prayer and we receive an encouragement to pray. Now, last week, Pastor John took us through the first six verses of chapter 7, and he was emphasizing there that Jesus was communicating that true righteousness involves seeing ourselves, ourselves clearly and seeing others clearly. And now as we move into the next verses, we're going to see that true righteousness involves also seeing God clearly, not only ourselves clearly and others clearly, but God clearly. The heavenly Father is always eager to meet your needs and bless you with good gifts. This is a delightful portion of God's Word, men and women, that can be a real antidote to malaise in prayer in our life. So as we look at this first section, there are going to be two key principles we're going to see. The first key principle is this, God eagerly welcomes prayer. We see that in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. This starts very simply. It starts with a verb. And that verb is the verb ask, ask. So often, you know, I think we wonder, why am I not growing more? We wonder, why do I seem to have so little spiritual impact at work or at school or in my neighborhood? Why is the Bible not more alive to me? Why am I confused at times? I don't really understand how God has gifted and equipped me for ministry. Why do I lack friends? Now, there can be multiple answers to those things, but part of it goes back to this verb, ask. James elaborates a little bit in James chapter 4 and verse 2 when he says this to the believers there. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. I want you to know that little phrase is always in the back of my mind. You know, if Jesus was sort of a, a circuit rider and he would come around every month and sit down with us and check with us about how our spiritual life is going, and we might say, well, Lord, this isn't happening and this isn't happening and that isn't happening, and I think 
a very common response that Jesus would give to us is, you do not have because you do not ask. I'm sure I'm going to hear that some when I get to heaven one day. Lord, what about such and such and such and such? Well, Bruce, you didn't have because you didn't ask. The Heavenly Father is always eager to meet your needs and bless you with good gifts. And I want you to look at that, I want you to look at that phrase for a moment. Part of the core issue in prayer is we don't believe that. We don't really believe that. That the Heavenly Father is always eager to meet our needs and to bless us with good gifts. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. By the way, in verses 9 to 11, he illustrates this. He says in verse 9, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? If you go around the Sea of Galilee, you'll oftentimes find these rounded limestone stones along the shoreline that look a little bit like a small loaf of bread. And he's saying, which person who, who is a dad, if your son asks for some bread, gives him this rounded stone, you know, just deceiving him and mocking him in his request? Verse 10, or if his son asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? I mean, no. no. Your, your son asks for a fish that you can eat. And ha, 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 here comes a snake and a live one of that that could hurt you and damage you. And what's Jesus saying? He says, normal fathers aren't like that, right? They're not like that. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, if you then, being evil, he doesn't mean that we're as evil as any man or woman could be, but he says, he's basically saying, since you are sinful and self-centered, which is what we are, right? If you then, being evil, sinful, and self-centered, know how to give good gifts to your children, here comes the key phrase, how much more, if you underline your Bible, underline those three words, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? I still vividly remember when I first went off to graduate training in seminary, and I was taking a class uh, with Professor Howard Hendricks. And I remember he looked at us, and we're all being trained for ministry, and he asked us this question. He said, what are you believing God for that only He can do? And I have to tell you, I was startled by that question. What am I believing God for that only He can do? I really, I didn't have anything. In fact, I, I didn't really have a spiritual box to place such a concept in. What am I believing God for that only He can do? And so I, I, I can remember going home to my wife, Janet, and I said to her, Jay, what are we believing God for that only He can do? And we really didn't have anything. And so we began to think, what should we believe God for that only He can do? And so here was one of the things that we came up with. We said, you know what we would love to be able to do before we actually graduate from seminary and we go out into ministry, what we would really love to be able to do is to go and take a tour of the land of Israel. We would love to go to the land of Israel, see the land of Israel, understand the background of, of everything by actually visibly seeing things and walking through the land. 
Now, you have heard the phrase dirt poor, right? Well, there is a category underneath that called seminary poor. And that's what we were. We were these graduate students who we just could barely make it. And so to pray such a prayer request was actually believing God for something that only he could do. There's no way humanly we could add up to paying multiple thousands of dollars apiece to go to the land of Israel. So we began to pray that. We found out a, a number of weeks later that Dr. John Walvard, who was then the president of Dallas Seminary, was going to be leading a trip to Israel with his wife. Oh, Lord, it'd be great to go with Dr. Walvard to Israel. We don't know how it could ever happen. And then eventually we found out something very interesting, the way that trip was organized. If you could recruit two couples to go on that trip to Israel, one person could go for free. And if you could recruit four couples who would go on that trip, two people could go for free. This is exactly the way it happened, right? And guess what? God provided four couples that we recommended to go, and the two of us went for free to the land of Israel. Now, men and women, that was a great lesson to learn about believing God for something that only he could do. It's a great lesson to learn before you even start out in ministry. And some of you are, are, are probably thinking, Bruce, it's such a wonderful thing that you had your prayer arena totally together ever since that. <laughs> Not true. You know what? I'm just like you. And I have to keep learning these things again and again. And more than once, I have had to relearn that lesson. I have something I'm praying for that only God can do. Many of you know that the last couple of years, I've had these incredible medical issues I've had to go through with. And, you know, there have been numerous answers to prayer, exciting answers to prayer over those two year, that two-year period. Uh, I've had to recover from two major surgeries. Uh, I had to get radiation therapy for the recurrence of cancer in my life. And God did some amazing things in answering prayer. But I want you to know that at the end of that time, my prayer life was really adrift in mediocrity. And it was a number of weeks ago when I was driving my way to work, had the radio off, no Bluetooth music playing at all, and I was just talking to the Lord. And there was no audible voice that I heard, but it was as if this thought came into my mind, as if God was saying to me, what are you believing me for that only I can do? And I had to say, God, I got nothing. I really don't. And it was like he was saying, you know, Bruce, get your chin up. And you need to be praying that way. And so very quickly, I had three new things I was praying that I was believing God for that only he could do. I'm still praying them. I haven't gotten an answer on them yet. But the Heavenly Father is always eager to meet our needs and to bless us with good gifts. Look at verse 8. 
It says, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, if you've been in the study earlier, you'll know from chapter 6 that those he's describing here as everyone who asks receives and who seeks finds and knocks it will be opened would not include those who just pray out of hollow ritual, who have these ritualistic prayers, and they think if I can pray 89 of those, somehow God will… No, it doesn't include people like that. It doesn't include people who pray hypocritically. But eliminating that group, this is pretty ding-dong exciting. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him it, who knocks, it will be open. You go, yeah, I knew there had to be a verse somewhere in the Bible like that. You know, God is this spiritual genie, and all you got to do is rub the prayer lamp, and he's going to give you whatever you request. You know, here comes the new phone. Here comes the new iPad. Here comes a new car. Here comes a new house. And if you're single, here comes a stunning girlfriend or the super hunk boyfriend. Is that, is, that what, is that really what the way it works? Well, I think James helps us again here in chapter 4 and verse 3 when he says this, you ask, this is about prayer, and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. I like the way the New Living Translation words that last phrase, you want only what will give you pleasure. See, we can't expect answers when the focus of our prayer is just me. I want more money. I want more stuff. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness. Let your eyes go back down to verse 11. If you then, being sinful and self-centered, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give? Here comes another key phrase, what is good to those who ask Him? Do we always really know what is good? (laughs) No, but He knows what is good. Let's take a little poll, all right? We're going to have a poll. I want you to put your hand up if this fits you, and just hold it up for a minute. Have you ever prayed for something where later on you were thankful that God said no? Anyone like that? All right, now, just keep your hands. I want you to just look around. Yeah, wow, how true it is. His ways are higher than our ways, and His goal is to give to us what is good, which may be different from what we are asking about. I love the perspective of this seasoned veteran of the spiritual life. Here's what he wrote. I asked for strength that I might achieve. He made me weak that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. He gave me grace that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. He did not give them so that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel a need of God. The thing is, he knows what is good. He knows what is good. First principle, God eagerly welcomes prayer. Second principle, God encourages persistence as we pray. Go back up to verse 7. 
It says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Those three commands, ask, seek, knock, in the original language are in a present tense, which could be very accurately translated. Keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. Persistence as we pray. Not only is it in the tenses that are used here, but, but even the verbs that are used, there is increasing intensity with each one. You know, the first one is we ask, and then we begin to seek, and then we are knocking. All of that stresses persistence in prayer. We're not going to go there to look at it, but I want you to jot down Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Luke 11, verses 5 to 13. It is the parallel passage to this one, and you have some of the same phraseology that is used in Luke 11. But in Luke 11, Jesus begins with the story of the persistent friend, and the punchline of that story is this. Because of persistence, the friend receives his request. And the implication is it's the same with God. God wants us to develop the discipline of prayer. And repetition and persistence is what is necessary to develop a skill. That's true in any area of life, whether it's cooking or gardening or any sport at all. Repetition and persistence is necessary in order to develop a skill. All of my kids are grown and gone from the home, but when my son Kyle was there, I coached him in every conceivable sport you can imagine. Won't even take time to list them all off. I coached him in all those. And I remember coaching him in soccer, and he had not played soccer when he was younger. And part of what we had to talk about is if you want to develop a skill in soccer, that involves repetition and persistence. If you want to learn how to really dribble the ball with speed down the field, it's repetition and persistence that will allow you to develop that skill. If you want to learn how to very accurately do back heel kicks to your teammates, it's repetition and persistence that allows you to develop that skill. If you want to learn how to powerfully lace kick the ball, it's repetition and persistence that allows you to develop that skill. And the same thing is true in the skill of praying. Repetition and persistence will allow us to develop that skill. God encourages persistence as we pray. You know, there's a lot that we can learn from an older lady who lived in New Jersey. I lived in New Jersey two different times. And this is a story about a lady by the name of Dorothy Clapp, probably never heard of her, who lived in New Jersey. And God gave her this particular burden. Her burden was to begin to pray for the public high school down the street from where she lived in New Jersey. And so day after day and month after month and actually year after year, she would pray faithfully for the students at that school. Now, first of all, she simply prayed that God would save some of those high school students, that they would trust in Christ as their rescuer from sin and judgment. Then she began to pray that not only would God save them, but that God might send them out 
to the ends of the earth. After she'd been praying for a number of years, she learned about a mischievous young student at the school by the name of George. And she said, I'm going I'm to pray specifically for George. She sent him a gospel of John. And for three years, she prayed for George. And at last, George Verver trusted Christ as his Savior. Before long, George led 200 other students to Jesus Christ. Some of them got together and they began to go out on evangelism trips that they would do. In 1957, three of them went to Mexico to evangelize down there during their summer vacation from college. By 1960, they were also taking Christian youth to Spain. By 1962, they had their first multi-nation European evangelism campaign that they were doing. By 1964, George led the first Operation Mobilization Group to the country of India. Each year now, there are several thousand Christian young people from multiple nations who join forces to evangelize, distribute literature, and seek to reach the nations for Christ. Operation Mobilization uh, is in gospel ports at times with gospel ships, and uh, they are handing out literature. They also enlist a number of students in one- to two-year short-term missionary service ventures. The graduates of Operation Mobilization are strengthening the ranks of Christian churches all around the world and in multiple Christian organizations around the world. It can all be traced to one lady in New Jersey, Dorothy Clapp, who began to pray for high school students in her community. The Heavenly Father, men and women, is always eager to meet your needs and to bless you with good gifts. You know, we could go on and on about illustrations of this. Those of you who know, we've been involved in Latvia from the time in Eastern Europe when it was part of the Soviet Union. And I can remember very vividly the day we wanted to believe God for something that only He could do. And we began to pray, God, somehow in this country, would you allow there to be raised up a Christian radio station? That was a wild idea. Those of you who know the story know that's exactly what happened. And now to this very day, because you just come back from Latvia, uh, helping to coordinate an orphan camp there, and I went back to the radio station and Met everybody and talked to everybody there, 100,000 listeners to the Christian radio station in that country, and the gospel message goes out every single day, and the Bible teaching goes out every single day, including the Bible teaching from this church. The list goes on and on. We could talk about that over and over again. The Heavenly Father is always eager to meet your needs and to bless you with good gifts. So we're looking at true righteousness simplified. First of all, we looked at it vertically in verses 7 to 11. The true righteousness is active in prayer. It's just an encouragement to pray. But we want to look at it also horizontally now in verse 12, where we see that true righteousness practices the golden rule. 
gives us a principle to live by. Look at verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, what is fascinating to me about verse 12 is I think verse 12 is a verse that probably most of us haven't thought about for a long time. When's the last time you were really thinking about applying verse 12 in your spiritual life? It's just kind of a lost principle out there. Notice how it begins. It says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. The therefore gives an implication. He's drawing an implication from something that has come previously. What is the implication being drawn from? Well, part of it is, since God is a giver of good gifts, he's saying you also, as a follower of God, ought to be a giver of good gifts. That's part of what he's drawing an implication from. But I think it even goes bigger than that. When he says, in everything therefore, he is really in part summarizing the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. He's covered a lot of material. But notice he says at the end, for this is the law and the prophets. He's basically saying, what I'm giving you here in verse 12 is a summary of the Old Testament teaching. Remember in Matthew 22 when they came to Jesus and they asked him this question, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Tell me, what did Jesus say? What was the greatest commandment? The love of the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind And then he said, and the second greatest commandment is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. How do we do that? I mean, how do we actually do that? Love our neighbor as our self. What is the simplest way to practice that? Well, I think Jesus gives us the principle, the summary principle. In everything, therefore, he says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. This summary principle is among the most well-known things that Jesus said. It's been called for generations the golden rule. How did it ever get that name? Well, tradition tells us that the Roman emperor Alexander Severus in the 200s A.D. took this principle from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and he inscribed it in gold on the walls of his chamber. And ever since then, it was known as the golden rule. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. The idea here, if I could just somewhat draw it out from what the original says, do for others what you would like them to do for you, or do to others what you would like them to do to you. Isn't that incredibly interesting summarization of much of the whole Old Testament in one little principle that Jesus gives us. Now, over the centuries, and in fact, even centuries before Jesus and centuries after Jesus, similar statements have been made. For example, the Chinese philosopher Confucius in 500 B.C. said this, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Now, when you look at that, it sounds very similar to what Jesus said when he says, do for others what you would like them to do for you. 
But it's really very different if you look at it more carefully. What Confucius shared was actually very negative. It was pretty passive and only would take minimal effort, just basically saying avoid certain things. What Jesus said was very different. It's very positive. It's very active. It involves giving of yourself. It involves action. For example, if I would say, I don't want other people to criticize and speak harshly to me, therefore I shouldn't do that to them. Or I could just get totally passive and just not speak at all. You know, I don't have to say anything to anybody. And I can fulfill what Confucius had to say. But what Jesus had to say is very different. You know, if I want others to forgive me when I make a mistake, if I want praise for my efforts, if I want someone to comfort me when I'm hurting, I need to forgive other people when they make a mistake. I need to praise them for their efforts. I need to comfort them when they're hurting. See, this is a call to us to have active action. This is really going to mean that I have to give of myself. Now, here's what's fascinating to me, men and women. This principle that you're looking at in verse 12, and it's amazing to me we don't have it in the forefront of our thinking, is a principle that can be applied in every situation in our life at all times. You can apply this principle with your spouse, with your children, with your brothers, your sisters, at work, at school, with your friends, with your neighbor, whether you want to or need to admonish somebody or whether you need to or want to encourage somebody, it can be applied in every situation. Do to others what you would like them to do to you. Do for others what you would like them to do for you. Why is this not in the forefront of our thinking more? Let me give you two tips for employing the golden rule, all right? Here's the first tip. Pause to ponder whatever the situation may be. You know, to ponder, how would I want others to treat me? You know, if I make a mistake, how would I want others to treat me? That's how I ought to treat others. If I said something wrong, and we do that all the time, my wife and I did that to one another yesterday, how would I want someone to treat me if I said something wrong? If, if I, I'm facing difficulty, how would I want people to treat me? If I'm celebrating an accomplishment, how would I want people to treat me? So if we're going to employ this golden rule principle, we need to, first of all, pause to ponder. And secondly, we need to take the initiative. That's the second tip. That's what God did for us. He took the initiative. This is what true righteousness, men and women, looks like. Now, we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of good stuff here, but I want to try to draw it all together now and talk about some life response. As we walk out of here, what do we do differently? First life response is to serve others consistently, to go out of here today, beginning today, practicing the golden rule. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Do for others as you would like them to do for you. Second life response we can have as we move out of here today, we can begin to implement this today, and that is to pray expectantly and persistently. 
What are we believing God for that only He can do? The Heavenly Father is always eager to meet your needs and to bless you with good gifts. 28 years ago, right here at Wildwood, Neil Wesson walked up to me and gave to me a bookmark and it had a little poem written by an unknown author. And this is what it said. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't have time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on, gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, you didn't seek. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, my child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for the Word of God that is alive and powerful and life-transforming. It is to affect the way that we think and the way that we live. And we thank you for this that we've seen today from the Lord. May we take these principles and implement them on a consistent basis for the honor of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. 